Father, please agree with me as you... Uh, as you're accustomed to, as you're willing to. Father in the heavens, I ask you please to prosper uh, these words for good outcomes, glad outcomes. I ask, Father, that you empower us to speak your word with authority, to live our lives as an example with authority. We commit these, this whole entire message into your hands in Yahshua's name. Amen. Thanks so much, brothers. I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May every promise of Yahshua's be yours. The title of my remarks today is Boosting Your Moral Authority. This is one of these sermons where you're going to have to work to get the most out of it. You're going to have to either take notes. At times I'll um, urge you to flip through your Bible and zoom in on a particular passage. You're not going to sit here today glassy-eyed and drooling over my beautiful PowerPoint slides. That's not going to happen today. You know, I remember one of the elders, I believe it was Elder Don Mansager, he was once scolding the congregation. He says, you know, people aren't taking notes anymore. You know, the original sacred name tradition is to take notes in services. So um, even with the PowerPoints, I suppose we could start that up again. But uh, you're going to have to work. You have to exert yourself this time. Well, friends, there's much wrong in this world and society around us. And there's no remedy, it seems, in sight. I'll be talking about coal mine disasters, abuse of power in government and policing agencies, disasters that are well-known, culture, society at all levels. There's only one missing ingredient in all of these scenarios. Name any evil going on. There's only one missing ingredient. And that is enforcement of Yah's law. Well, there might be other ingredients missing. Well, we don't love each other enough. In fact, if you ask enough people, you might find some knuckleheads out there who say, we don't love ourselves enough. You know? But the issue really is enforcement. <coughs> enforcement of Yah's laws. And when it's time for someone to speak up, it's time for someone to put their foot down, it's time for somebody to say no, we often find that there's a knife to their throat. I've been in this situation where I wanted to speak up, but I couldn't. How many of you have felt that way? You wanted to speak up. You wanted to say something. You said, I can't, I can't get it out. It's, it's like I'm held back. It's like the souffle that won't rise. You just can't get it, get it, gin it up, you know? How does this happen? How are we put into a state of checkmate? This material will be a weaving of real life stories, interspersed with scripture citations. So we start to build a, a cloud of understanding of how we get in these situations. I'm going to read to you some uh, bullet points from a CNN webpage about coal mine disasters. Now I remember back, um, it was around the turn of the century, a terrible coal mine disaster they were doing what's called retreat mining. Um, this is where they would leave giant pillars of coal up in the caves. They, they scoop out the coal. And as they leave the mountain, as they leave the cave, they pull out the pillar. So the cave fall, collapses in. And what you have is this giant sponge-like mountain. It's like a giant sponge. And they're starting to pull out the pillars. And they got too aggressive with that, and the, the coal mine collapsed. And... The guys, a lot of guys died in that, particularly at the very bottom. And uh, 
As usual, you know, the news report says, yeah, this mountain was cited for several safety violations. This one's more recent in the CNN webpage I accessed. April 5th, 2010, I'm going to go kind of fast. 29 miners are killed in an explosion at the Upper Ridge Big Branch Mine in Naoma, West Virginia. April 29, 2011, the Massey Energy agrees to permanently seal the Upper Big Branch Mine. May 19, 2011, according to the Governor's Independent Investigation Panel's report, the explosion was preventable and due to safety system failures. December 6, 2011, we have a way to go now. The Justice Department announces a deal. Ooh, there's a deal where the new owners of the Upper Big Branch coal mine will pay $209 million settlement, including $1.5 million to the families of each of the 29 men who died. Well, there's an old game for you. We'll cut corners, create risks, we'll live with the risks. If something goes wrong, we can always work out a deal later. I think every time we sin, we, we have that kind of dialogue with ourselves. Say, well, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I think I can work out something later. Hmm? January 10th, 2012, the owner of the West Virginia mine settles the wrongful death lawsuits with families of all 29 victims of the Upper Big Branch disaster. CNN confirmed that the settlement was reached in mediation for seven of the cases, and later on, 22 of the cases. February 22, 2012, Gary May, the Upper Big Branch Mine Superintendent at the time of the explosion, is charged with conspiring to impede the mine's safety and health administration efforts at the mine between 28 and 2010. He pleads guilty in March 2012. February 29, 2012, Huey Albert Stover, former Secretary Security Director for the Massey Energy's Upper Big Branch Coal Mine is sentenced to 36 months in jail for making a false statement and obstructing the government's investigation. We're almost done with this list, but nobody's speaking up. All these guys are getting nailed, and nobody says, hey, let's stop this. Alpha Natural Resources seals the Upper Big Branch Mine permanently on June 20th of 2012, January 17th. Gary May is sentenced to 21 months in prison and three years supervised release. September 10th, 2013, David Huger, the highest-ranking company official and former Massey Energy Division president, is sentenced to 42 months in prison for violating mine health and safety laws. Do we have quite a cast of characters here? It's like Jimmy Durante once said, everybody's getting in on the act. You know, to cover up this stuff, you have to have a lot of people being quiet, it looks like that's what we have here. December 3rd, Blankenship, uh, Don Blankenship, the former CEO of Massey Energy, is convicted of conspiracy to willfully violate mine health and safety standards and is acquitted on two other felony charges. April 16, 2016, Blankenship is sentenced to a year in federal prison. Now, I mentioned several corporate executives in the, cor in the course of running down this list. I'm not going to say the name this time. But you know, one of these jokers is running for Senate. I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Okay, now, I tell my friends, I says, you know, friends and those who hardly know me, I say, listen, I want to be open with you. I lean conservative, but I have a controversial liberal streak. Now, that keeps everybody guessing, Right? But the reason that's so is because I'm informed by the Hebrew and New Covenant scriptures. And at times that stuff looks liberal, at times it looks conservative. And that's because Yahweh's truth cuts across all areas of life. 
Uh, those who know me well know that I'm pro-labor, because you're always pro-labor. But that doesn't mean the unions are always right. You know, the, the, the unions are not always right. But Yahweh definitely treasures, I say work is sacred. But I have a question for you. With all these executives running around trying to cover up the safety violations and conspiring to make sure none of this gets out, or the previous coal mine disaster I mentioned around the turn of the century where they did the strip mining thing, that controversial, dangerous thing where they purposely collapsed the mine to get every last ounce of coal out of there. One question, just one question I have. Where's the unions? Where's the union? Why didn't the unions go in there and say, we're not going to lift a finger until you make this mine safe? We're not going in there. Why didn't they say anything? You don't have to think too hard. I'm going to give you a, a story that seems unrelated, and it'll... If you haven't figured out why the unions didn't speak up, the light bulb, will, I guarantee, will go on. I taught at a post-secondary school in Chicago for approximately one year. I, was, I wanted to teach electronics to um, um, what they call at-risk students, at-risk communities. What I found is they didn't have the math skills. And it was, what happened is I wound up just teaching a bunch of uh, immigrants from Asia I enjoyed going into the teacher's lounge on certain days. It was just a bunch of cubicles, and I hear the conversations bouncing off the ceiling. These teachers were at their wit's end, talking about their delinquent students. They don't show up for class. They don't show up for the exam. They don't turn in the homework. One kid, he, he said he couldn't make the midterm exam, or one of the, the big exams, because an uncle died and he had to go to the funeral. Then the next big exam came up, and he said the same thing. He says, another uncle died, and I had to go to the funeral. And I remember hearing the teacher, uh, remember, these conversations are bouncing off the ceiling. The teacher says, you know, I think this student is running out of uncles to die so he can skip the test. Everybody had a war story about their delinquent students across the board. It was like a pathology, a group pathology. Well, I had connected with one of the teachers, and I, I went to her personally. I said, come on, I, I know what you're dealing with. Have you considered just flunking all those students in your class? Has that crossed your mind? And she hung her head, and she said the following. She said, if I flunk all the students, I don't have a class. If I don't have a class, I don't have a job. And if I don't have a job, my husband and I will lose the mortgage on our home. You see, she has no moral authority. She's stifled. There's a knife to her throat. She can't flog those kids because she needs the job. The reason the unions didn't shut down that mine, it would have been on moral ground, I think the whole nation would stand with them. But the guys working at the mine needed the job. You're starting to get the picture. There are situations we find ourselves in where we... we are unable to speak up in a timely manner. Turn to Proverbs 22.7, please, if you're willing to follow along. Now I go out of my way to connect with people everywhere I can. I really feel sorry for that gal. I'm going to keep this job teaching students who won't learn so I can pay the mortgage 
Proverbs 22, 7, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. There you go. I don't want to lose the mortgage on the house. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about fake moral authority because I want to get them off the table. That's one of the ways you get in trouble is borrowing. Mm-hmm. Because now you're, you're, you're in a jam. Only heaven knows what kind of things you're going to commit to or agree to just to keep that ball going, keep that ball in the air with that mortgage. I'd like you, all, all of you, one of you, to consider the, um, if we can tap the break, the uh, work of Dave Ramsey. He's a, a Christian financial advisor. He's telling people nationwide, get out of debt. You, you wind up getting these mortgages, you pay two and three times more than it's worth. You're better off saving up. And living a life of discipline and restraint. Well, anyway, I'm not going to make a doctrine out of that. But the Bible says the borrower is a servant to the lender. Let's talk about fake moral authority, victimhood. I'm tired of people thinking that I'm going to, they have some kind of moral authority just because they're a victim. They have a lot to tell me about their ordeal. But they cannot tell me the solution if it's going to be something pathological. How about mere muscle? There's people who just throw their weight around. They think they, they, they got authority because they got a lot of money or they got a lot of prestige. Moral authority comes from knowing that what you're saying or what you're enforcing is ordained of heaven, that it's pleasing to Yahweh, where you know Yahweh's on your side. I'm going to talk about something that's kind of in the news lately. But look at it from Yahweh's perspective. One way to destroy your moral authority is to not speak up in a timely manner. I'm afraid to ask for a show of hands, but I might see some heads bob. I look back over the years how many times I failed to speak up in a timely manner, and that bad thing that I wasn't—I wasn't—I may have been involved. I may not. Have, I may have just been in that same theater of activity. But by not speaking up, that evil thing spirals out of control, and it's harder and harder to contain because it's just getting worse. I have to speak in generalities in the interest of time, but I've heard nipping it in. I've heard. I have learned that nipping it in the bud is the right thing. How many times have we hung our head and thought, I wish I had spoke up sooner? This is a difficult passage from Deuteronomy 22. And I'll be reading the whole thing, but if you want to follow right in your own Bible, it's Deuteronomy 22, 22. Hmm, that might be easy to remember. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, okay, she's engaged, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so that shall put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. But if the man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lie with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for as when a man rises against his neighbor. Why, uh, and slayeth him, even so it is with this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. Now, friends, that's Yahweh's morality. That's Yahweh's economy. 
Notice the assumption here is that if a woman is assaulted in the city, the whole city knows we don't tolerate this. We protect our women. You girls may, may, may not be aware of this, but in Yahweh's economy, you're the prize. In Yahweh's economy, you're the jewel. You are the, you are the thing to be treasured. A girl cries out in the city, every man in, within hearing distance is going to be there with pitchforks or axes or something to find out, why is this girl crying? We're on her side. That's Yahweh's economy. Notice that if this assault occurs in, in the countryside, there's nobody to hear her. The assumption is she's going to cry. She's going to cry out. She's going to cry out right away. That's her moral authority, crying out right away. That's how Yahweh looks at it. I want to be careful what I say. I got five amazing women in my family, four sisters and a mom. Among them, three of them were assaulted. It happened over a period of two decades, early 60s, early 70s, and early 80s. It didn't go past that line. It didn't get past that unspeakable line. But two of those... My mother was beaten very badly. One of my sisters was beaten very badly. In the other case, the assailant heard someone at the top of a stairwell and he fled. But in all three cases, we called the cops right away. Right away. You don't dilly-dally, think about it, tell your friends, put it in a diary. You call the cops right away. By the way, in one of the cases, they caught the cop. Pardon. One of, these, one of these cases, the cops caught the guy. Now, I was either very young or away from home in all three cases. Actually, my mom and one of the sisters, they're awful good fighters. I almost feel a little bit sorry for the assailant. Uh, they, maybe over lunch, we can, I can tell you more. But um, they spoke up right away. We have, though, uh, a lot of cases emerging where these things occurred long ago. When you do that, when you report something that after a long period of time, you've lost your moral authority. Well, why did you wait? Was there something in it for you? Was there a TV contract in it for you? Hmm? Maybe you were in a place your parents told you not to go. Would you be like maybe embarrassed to tell your parents you went to that place they told you not to go? So why are people not speaking up in a timely manner? Well, usually because there's something in it. There's some payoff, right? Now, I'm sure there's cases where people don't speak up because they're scared, right? They're just scared. And maybe it's unexplainable to me. But those who don't speak up in a timely manner have to understand we who hear these stories long after the fact, we're puzzled. We have a burden. If you are part of Yah's kingdom and you want his will asserted, you've got to speak up about evil real quick. Let me hit the break and say what's not on my notes, but say a few words about the whistleblowers. I feel sorry for whistleblowers. Um, they're always wrong. The whistleblower is always the bad guy. You spoke up too soon. Uh, you waited too long. You went to the wrong people. You should have went right to the top. You should have went through proper channels. You didn't have all the facts. 
The whistleblower is always the bad guy. In order for you to make your case when it's time to speak and stand for Yah's kingdom, you'll have to develop moral authority brick by brick. And it will take many years. It's going to take, it's probably going to be a lot of mistakes. There's going to be a lot of situations where you say, I should have spoke up. Next time I'm not going to let it go by. It's okay to learn from the times you miss the opportunity to speak up. Here, a word for young people who might be in a courtship. If one of you makes an improper move in the course of that courtship, seeking improper liberties, do you understand that your moral authority in that relationship is now diluted? It's going to be very hard to stand for Yah's kingdom in that relationship if you took improprieties, improper liberties, in, in the course of the courtship. Don't think in your heart, we'll work something out later. Well, whatever that, that later thing is, it's going to be real ugly. You're better off engaging each other, maybe after the sermon or after services or something. I notice people in the outreach who are hearing this, you're better off sitting down together and getting each other in hand and saying, we were wrong. From this point forward, Yah's kingdom will rule in this relationship. I'm going to talk about scenarios along the lines of, quote, you owe me. You owe me. Somebody manufactures a situation where I'm now, I didn't know about this, but I'm now suddenly beholden to them. And I can't speak up. I have learned to reject discounts. Unless it's like a, every, everybody has the same discount, if it's a coupon or something. But I have learned to reject one-on-one discounts. There was a fellow back at one of the engineering companies who always liked to go to lunch. And um, he, he just liked to go to lunch. And he was always inviting people, hey, let's go to lunch. And one of these lunches, we decided we'd just split the ticket. And um, everything on one ticket. And what the guy didn't know was that I tend to push back. If the, if the cashier at the checkout counter charges me too little, I raise a flag. I said, you know, it's it said more than that on the shelf. And they're usually shocked because I, I tell them, listen, I say, enjoy it while you can. Most people argue in the other direction, you know. But if I don't think people are charging me enough, I raise a flag. Um, this workmate, he was offended when the ticket came to the, to the desk. I said, wait a minute, ma'am. You, you didn't charge us for that second round of, of Coca-Cola's. And so she corrected the bill. And this coworker was hopping angry at me for a Coke. I said, come on, I pay for what I get. I want to I pay my way. He says, no, 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 you're not speaking for me. You know? Now, what did I learn from that? I didn't see this coming. In a lot of the cases where we have our moral authority challenged, we didn't see it coming. A lot of us get blindsided. That's why it's good to tell stories Rack up your experiences and learn from them. For this reason, I don't want to split a check anymore with people who are not in the faith. I, I just, you do your check, I'll do mine. If the waitress says, we cannot have separate checks at your table, then I'm walking away. I'm just walking away. And that's an important principle. As you develop moral authority, you've got to cultivate the willingness to walk away. 
You may have to walk away from everything. Come on, friends. Do you really think that beast system is just going to sneak up on you one day and bang? You just wake up and everybody's got to have the mark and, or, or they can't eat? That system is going to sneak up on us. If you haven't noticed, it looks like it's got a good start already. In order to, to boost your moral authority, you're going to have to cultivate the willingness to say no and walk away. You may have to walk away from everything. I'm very willing to walk away from a lunch just to make sure that my participation in that tab doesn't get caught up in somebody else's value system. Let's turn the page. Let's talk about one of my, my kid sister's boyfriends. And uh, I'm just going to call him Joe for now. But um, he told me an amazing story how he would go to the lumber yard. In fact, I think my dad taught him how to be a carpenter. But anyway, he'd go to the lumber yard, and the guy was always giving him discounts. And Joe never spoke up. He figured, well, I got a discount. I'm, I'm not going to say anything. And one day he bought something, and he was overcharged. And the merchant said, hey, don't complain about this. He said, I gave you all those discounts up till now. See, Joe lost the moral authority to complain about an unfair price on a large ticket item because he got a lot of tiny discounts and didn't speak up. That's why, as part of my strategy, I'm turning down discounts. There's the squeegee brigade. How many know what the squeegee brigade is? I'm glad you forgot. Okay, about, it started about 20, 30 years ago. It's in the big cities. It's these guys running around with buckets of sudsy water and squeegees. And when you're at the red light, they come up to your car and they wash your window. And then they expect you to tip them. So they put upon you a, a debt that you didn't ask for. And some of these zones, I mean, some of these areas, they look like combat zones. You don't want to like, roll down the window or get out of the car or anything. <coughs> uh, so, um, look, you can handle the squeegee brigades all you want, but that's one of those scenarios where they say, you owe me. I just did something for you. You owe me now. A bunch of us got together and bought a bed once for a guy who needed a bed. And we were in a hurry. And the merchant noticed he perceived that this was some kind of a deal where we're doing a favor for a guy. He says, you know, it looks to me like you're doing a good deed for somebody here. Let me give you a discount. He gave us a discount. And I happened to be there when they were delivering the bed. Unfortunately, it was a fire drill. It was kind of like a hurry-up thing. Uh, yeah, he gave us a discount, but the frame he gave us was used. And you could tell because the wheels were worn out on it. The wheels were worn. He did not give me a discount on new merchandise. He gave me a discount uh, on used stuff. And this is where, again, I, I can't speak up because I'm in a hurry. And that's something else to watch for. If you're in a hurry, you're going you're gonna to get dinged. If you want something so bad, I've got to have it now, I've got to have it now, you're going to get dinged. And if they sense you're in a hurry, the price is probably going to go up. But when you're in a hurry and you want something real bad, your ability to speak up is hindered. And if there's a discount on top of that, the guy can just turn and say, what are you complaining about? I gave you a discount. 
In the 1960s, there was case law settled. We had this, um, <laughs> I just, I just wonder if, um, let's just say for you young people, I'm glad you didn't have to live through the 60s, but these, there are record companies who would send records to you and claim you owed them money. And there was a case law that said, somebody sends you something and you didn't ask for it, you don't have to pay for it. <coughs> Get merchandise in the mail. And they just sort of create a bill, a debt for you. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy 16, 19. I'm not telling you discounts are immoral. Again, I'll, I'll use a common coupon that everybody else can, can use, but in these direct negotiations, I, as of late, have been telling people, I don't want a discount. Just give me full, I'll pay full price. I'm happy. All I want is a fair deal, you know. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. Neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Hmm? Now, in a number of these stories so far, people were bought off. They got a job, they, and they need that income for something at home. Hmm? Or maybe they just want something, period. But one bit, yeah, receiving something will soften you up. Now, we read today in the book of Judges how some guy got a gift. Some guy got a gift. Some military commander got a gift, and his enemy gave him a gift, and they, he arranged for everybody to get out of the room, and he, he assassinated his enemy. But he used a gift to get that entry. I'm very leery of uh, people bearing gifts. To talk about undercutting moral authority by foolish behavior and or dropping our guard. Well, being in a hurry is one of them, like in the case of the delivery of that bed. You want something now, you might be willing to cut corners. There's a lot of other ways, though, of diminishing your moral authority. People are watching you. I know with certainty they're watching us. I notice how rarely people use profanity when I'm around because I'm not using it. <laughs> On some occasions, they'll say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, Mike. <clears throat> when I joined Motorola, well, actually, I was with Motorola for a few years, and I moved to the Phoenix facility in Mesa, Arizona, and one of those guys perceived I had a religious background. This is around 1980. And um, he's... He was with the big factory. I was with a little design team in a satellite office down there. And I'm in his office uh, talking to this manager. He says, I think you'd be interested in joining our group. It's a Youth for Christ group. It's a really rewarding experience. You really ought to come join us. I think you'd like it. And I says, well, I'll think about it. I was already a Sabbath keeper on my own. I was not plugged into any organization or anything. I was keep keeping Sabbath on my own. But did you know about two years later, I spotted that very same guy on a jet plane reading a pornographic magazine. You ain't going to have no moral authority with me. Telling me in his office, you've got to join our Youth for Christ thing. And then he's reading a porn magazine. He's flipping through the pages. 
It's on a public airplane. I couldn't believe it. One way to diminish your moral authority is to speak ill of your parents. Those of you who have been trafficking in this, stop it now. Repent now. You have no idea the problems you are creating. There are episodes in the Bible where men have clustered in like a revival setting, and it says, quote, they confess the sins of their fathers. I'm very leery of anybody who says, I want to tell you my testimony. And so many times they start off talking bad about their parents. That doesn't edify me. Those of you who are entering a courtship, you want to know, some people they do this, he loves me, he loves me, not stuff with flowers. We don't traffic in that, of course. But when you're entering into a courtship with somebody, you want to have an assurance of what that relationship will be like Just get a fix on how they talk about their parents. That tells you a ton. That tells you a ton. Thank you so much, Brother Lucas. You brought a cup of water for me. I sang with the congregation. I sang a special. Now I'm talking. I'm no talk show host. But here's what happens when you speak ill of your family. Let's just take an example. Suppose you complain about your father to your friends. When your friends speak ill of your father, you'll feel a ton of bricks come down on you. Here's one. This is more anecdotal. I don't remember the details, but I remember it factually. There was a fellow with one of these major Christian advocacy groups so back around the turn of the century and uh, a reporter asked him, he was an executive, and he says, Did, when you were married, were you a virgin? And he refused to answer. Several weeks later, he resigned. <laughs> you don't want to give up your moral authority. Another way to ruin your moral authority is to break your word. Give a promise and, break, and then don't do it. The, uh, the famed Christian... Preacher Bill Gothard discovered a vast area of of uh, messianic healing that was needed. Uh, it's just amazing how many. It became like a full time ministry for him to deal with these families, where the kids' hearts were broken. Dad said he's going to take me fishing. He didn't do it. Mom didn't take me shopping for the prom dress. Kids, they remember this stuff. If you have broken your promises to your children, engage them and sit them down and say, we were wrong. We don't want this to happen anymore. I'm very sorry for the ways in which I let you down. If you want to rebuild, forget the moral authority thing. If you want to rebuild that relationship, you've got to approach those of you who have hurt with broken promises. Because you're going to have to maintain order in the home. Here's another one I... um, there was a famous work group in Chicago called the White Collar Girls. Anybody ever heard of the White Collar Girls in Chicago? Today they're called White Collar Services, but it used to be the White Collar Girls. When my daddy's restaurant went, went out of business, my mom said, hey, why don't you call the White Collar Girls? Maybe they'll let you do work for them for the rest of the summer. <coughs> so I was actually the first white-collar boy of that organization. 
And uh, my first job was in a print shop in an engineering company. And I remember getting a bad twitch in my eye from the ammonia coming out of the blueprint machine. And as we got deep into the summer, they said to me, Mike, listen, you, you got to be careful. A lot of these engineers come here as we approach the end of August. They're asking for extra office supplies. You watch. Papers, pens, pencils, erasers, all kinds of office supplies. He, she says, they don't need it for themselves. They're taking it home for their kids, for school, because school season's coming. Now, question. You're a dad, and you're stealing from work to provide school supplies for your kid. How do you maintain order in your home? How do you stand for what's right and wrong in your home if you commit an open sin like that? It always bothered me that these guys were well paid and he couldn't gin up a few bucks for school supplies for their kids. They had to steal it from their employer. When you do an open sin like that and you make sport of it, how you rip somebody off, you have no moral authority. You have no way to stand for anything. Another way of losing your moral authority is to make excuses for people, places, and things that you like. When someone is challenged in an area where they've fallen short, one thing that, the first thing they'll do if they don't have a defense is they'll say, they'll like indict you. They'll indict you. As if you have no standing to say that. By the way, here's a tip. This is a golden tip now. This is one of those golden ones. If you haven't taken notes up till now, you'll take a note on this. If you confront somebody when they're doing wrong and they say, don't judge me, here's your comeback line. When they say, don't judge me, you say, that's what the guilty always say. Okay? There's your comeback. Okay? So... One Sabbath in Mesa, Arizona, when I was down there with Motorola, it was a Sabbath, and I was bored, and I was hot. And I thought I'd go to the office. I didn't even bring a Bible. This is, this is how weak my Sabbath-keeping was. I was just starting out. And I sat in the office because it was air-conditioned. I thought, well, nobody's going to be there. And um, maybe I did bring a Bible. But anyway, what happened is there was a contractor there putting in flooring <coughs> and putting up cubicle walls. And he comes by and talks to me. And he asked me about the office. Do I like the design, the layout, and everything? I, I engaged him in conversation. And then he goes to the crew. He says, I just talked to the engineer over there. We should put this thing over here and we use a different car. So what happened is my little casual conversation became a directive for someone breaking Sabbath. You think I went back to that office anymore on Saturday? <laughs> no, no. But you get lured into these things, these little compromises. I should have stayed home. You know, if I want to stay cool, I can go to a library or something. People are watching. I was at a business meeting at um, AT&T, and an executive in the room proposed that we lie to a customer. Later on, later on, somebody in that meeting came to me and said, Bannock, I'm surprised you said that. And I said, no, it wasn't me, it was that other guy. But you see, people are watching. 
Here's a story I tell often. The brother in the covenant, way back around the early 80s, when they're starting to get into self-serve gas pumps. Such a good story, even if it's a twice-told tale, I think it's worth it. When we were doing the self-serve early on, we had to pay for it and make sure we stopped the gas pump right at the amount that we paid for. And you had to, like, tease it for the last few ounces so as the, the amount came up to exactly what you paid, you stopped. Well, this, every time I went over, like, a few pennies, I'd go in and square up with the guy. Okay, if I failed to do that, I forgot it. But usually, the vast majority of the time, I know that's what happened. But this fellow... This was long before we met him. He told the story from his past. He went like two cents over. He paid for like $5 of gas, which was a lot of gas back then. He went two pennies over. He looked at the pump and he nixed it off. He jumped in his car and ran his errands for the rest of the day. <coughs> well, later that day he comes home and the cops are waiting for him. Okay. Not for two cents. No, his son had been picked up. His son had been shoplifting two pieces of penny candy. Okay? No, this is how Yahweh talks to us sometimes. Now, how could this guy discipline his child for a two-cent theft when he just did it earlier that day? Yahweh is not impressed with the smallness of your sin. By paying that two cents, he, he could have held the demons at bay for another day. We're reading the book of Judges right now. A lot of compromise, inability to cleanse the land. Here's one. This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. One of these cases, I don't have all the answers. I don't watch TV. When I go to somebody's house and they got a TV on, I'm fascinated. Has anybody heard of that TV show, Blue Bloods? Nobody? Okay. When I visit my sister in Chicago, her husband likes to show me these broadcasts. And one of them had a a police officer, a high-ranking officer, struggling with a senior home situation with his mom. And being an investigator, he's very observant. He sees, hey, she's, she's being assessed for medical conditions she doesn't have. One guy has an IV bag with, with water in it. It's, just, it's a lot of things going on that aren't necessary. And he concluded that they were charging the government for unnecessary services. This was a clear con conclusion in the story. And he thought, wait a minute. He said, if I blow the whistle, I've got to close down that home and I've got to find a new place for mom. You see, he can't make a move. He can't stand for what's right because it will affect his family. Hmm. Well, some of you know I have uh, power of attorney for uh, an elderly woman. And I'm seeing evidence of this lately. I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm sure Yahweh will give me the answer. But it's just kind of funny. I'm seeing right now, in real time, something that's on a TV show. Okay, we're going to talk about strategies. We're going to talk more about ways of getting ourselves in position so we can say no, so we can enforce the laws of heaven. 
we should at the minimum force the laws of heaven in our personal life, our personal bodies, our personal space, our hearts, our minds. There's areas where Yahweh has given us authority, such as our homes or our work. We have to make sure the rules are enforced there. Strategy number one, I don't, in no particular order, Proverbs 25, verse 26. I'd like to bring something to your attention. Falling down before the wicked. Proverbs 25, 26. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a troubled spring. No, pardon, a corrupt spring. If people see you take a fall morally, you won't have any basis for declaring Yah's truth or to stand for his kingdom. We inherited a lot of good uh, ideas and traditions from the Worldwide Church of God. They taught us that we were ambassadors for a kingdom, and you better act like it. Behave yourself, always. But for the sake of this topic, you've got to behave yourself when people are watching. This is not an invitation to be a hypocrite when they're not watching. I'm just telling you, use that as an engine, a context to be on your best behavior. Please turn to Proverbs 19.2. <coughs> Strategy number two, don't be in a hurry. Proverbs 19.2. Also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good, and he that hastes with his feet sinneth. We are in a hurry, you're going to cut corners, you're going to fudge the data, you're going to face temptations to put things off that should be taken care of now. Item number three. I learned something about Judaism recently. You call any Orthodox rabbi and ask them, what is the greatest sin in Judaism? What's the worst sin in Judaism? It's to violate a version of the third commandment. That is to take the Almighty's name and bring it to naught, blend it with evil. All right? To blend Yah's name with evil. The scriptures literally say, Yahweh will not hold them guiltly who taketh his name in vain. If you're sufficiently afraid of him, or maybe you interpret that fear of being very afraid of disappointing him, that's a legitimate interpretation too. You don't want to blaspheme Yah's name. You want to be on your best behavior to protect his name. I'm going to talk about Yahshua in terms of strategies. See, what turned out is originally a bunch of coaching on how to maintain your moral authority. It looks like it's turning into yet another Brother Michael message on how to stop sinning, isn't it? I'm going to ask a question. How did Yahshua do it? There's times I just shook my head thinking, how did he avoid sin? How did he stop that? He must have made love for Yahweh Top priority. Top, 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 top priority. So let me tap the brake and ask a question. Is he worth following? I purposely sang a song about following him. I, uh, but it turns out Brother James, our beloved brother from Ireland, he read 
the ending of John. Did you know that Yahshua's first command in the book of John is in chapter 1, verse 43? The day following, Yahshua would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Well, it turns out, follow me is the last command he gave in John 21, verse 22, which we heard. They're talking about whether John the um, apostle might live until the second coming. Yahshua says to Peter, if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me. Is it possible to follow Yahshua in a way that makes sin very rare? John begins with follow me, he ends with follow me. Look it up sometime. Follow me at your search tools. Is he worthy of following? I always enjoy injecting some uh, apologetic information in here. You take all of the teachers of religion and philosophy that we know about, line them all up against the wall. Pick your, pick, I don't want to say pick your favorite because I know who our favorite is. Pick any one of them you want. The Buddha, Zarathustra, Confucius, Muhammad. There's really not that many, but you line them all up. Put them all against the wall. Put Yahshua there too. And you ask him, which one of you guys was so important that the Almighty told the world that you are coming? Which one of you guys was so important that the Supreme Being documented where you would be born? where you'd live, how you'd die, what your teachings are, your impact on the world. There's dozens and dozens of prophetic statements about Yahshua in advance. Which of these teachers in history has that, that, those kind of bona fides? Huh? None of them. Yahshua is certainly worth following. We, um, we have such an amazing teacher. There's minor exceptions to that. John the Baptist was anticipated, but we only get a little bit about him. And also we have some important prophecies about the man of sin, the beast, and so forth. But for Yahshua's ministry, we have this vast prophetic scheme. It's so compelling. There's passages of the Bible that the rabbis tell the Jews, don't read that. Because I know when they see it, their eyes pop out and they say, oh my gosh, that's the Nazarene they're talking about there. We're going to follow Yahshua to uphold our moral authority, put an end to sin in our life. One thing I want you to do is to think long term. That's not an invitation to put it off. What I mean is live with the fact that you're going to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Sin undermines your moral authority, makes sin your mortal enemy. Yahshua promises success in getting the speck out of your brother's eye once you remove the log from your eye. And he gives you a three-step program for restoring your brother. And, you know, if you fail to get that log out of your brother's eye, the three-step program will remove that guy because he's obviously got the problem after you follow the three-step program. But I'd like you to turn with me to a passage that has troubled me for years. Isaiah 42, 19. And um, if somebody has a better explanation, I, I'd love to hear it. But only, about, only in the context of this material that I figure out what this means. Isaiah 42, 19. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? And blind as Yahweh's servant? 
this prophecy seems to suggest Yahshua would be blind. This has puzzled me for years. I see one of my sister friends over here, her face is turned inside out, trying to figure out, well, where's this going? Makes a ton of sense now, because I've been dinged so many times. Caught off guard, promising something I shouldn't. Think about it. When you're blind, you can experiment at home where it's safest. But close your eyes and try to walk around, and suddenly you get real careful. If you're blind, you're real careful. You're always putting feelers out to figure out where you're at, where you're going, what's in the way, what's hazardous. This prophecy is a tip-off as to how Yahshua avoided sin. He walked very carefully like a blind man. He knows he can't see everything out there, can't see everything coming. He has to walk very carefully so that he has time to react. I've been experimenting with something for the last few weeks, and I like the results so far. I'm starting to view every transaction as a potential for sin. Go ahead, take me aside later. And say, Brother Mike, you're taking it too seriously. Here, I'll put it this way. Let you who is without sin be the first to take me aside and tell me I'm getting too fanatical. If you view every transaction as an opportunity to sin, just getting into traffic, am I jumping in too fast? Am I cutting off my neighbor who might be in a hurry too? Oh, the cashier did not charge me enough for that merchandise. Will I keep my mouth shut so I get a break? If we carefully go through life knowing that we're guarding Yahweh's name as we walk, like a blind man, very carefully treading, you're going to see the sin in your life go way down. They have every I dotted and every T crossed. I tell people, I'm a by-the-book guy. We're not going to... We had a mechanic who uh, tried to give me uh, an inspection certificate, and the inspection wasn't done. He says, well, I'll just sign it. You can get the license plate. I said, no. We're not going to get the license plate until every box on that list is checked. He thought he was doing me a favor. See, he thinks I'm in a hurry. Cut corners. See, I anticipate every transaction, like if I'm doing lunch with the guys, I'm going to do my own check. We once had a manager at one of the engineering companies. He told terrible, terrible jokes. But he was ethical to a fault. And one of the major suppliers said, listen, we can give you extra software under the table. He said, no, give me a discount, I'll take that. I'll take a discount that's documented, but don't give me unlicensed software. <clears throat> We're almost done. Coming to a close here. One thing you'll have to do is to build relationships before you act strong. When we t- urge people to start keeping Sabbath, um, there's a part there that needs some explaining. You're not supposed to go into your boss, you know, like a, like a barrel rolling over some crackers. You're, you're supposed to go in. You're supposed to already have a good reputation on the job. If you've been coming in late, leaving early, goofing off, surfing the internet instead of getting your work done, 
And then you go in and say, I want Sabbath off. <coughs> you look kind of dumb. You build a relationship. If you've built a good relationship with the supervisor, convince them that you had his or her success in mind at all times. Um, then you, uh, you have a strong basis for an appeal. See, now, learning from mistakes. One thing I experienced several times in the business world, I just gave up on it. I've made this mistake at least three times, maybe more. I'll tell a clean joke over dinner, and then everybody else takes that as the go-ahead to tell their dirty jokes. Uh, it's like, wait, I thought I only told a clean joke. Well, for them, that's the springboard. Okay. Now, one time I passed up a chance to say, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to laugh at that. Because that's my, that's my comeback when this stuff happens. One time I passed that up. And I feel like I can let you all the way down. How many here have seen the movie Grapes of Wrath? Grapes of Wrath. Sister Debbie, there's a scene in there. I really urge you guys to look, check out this classic. Because during the Dust Bowl era, they turned people against each other. There's a heart-wrenching scene where the owner of this land comes through and he tells the tenant farmers they've got to get off. Now, if you do research elsewhere, you'll find that the federal government sent checks to these landowners during the Dust Bowl era. And what did these guys do? They went and bought a tractor so they could kick the tenant farmers off. Instead of letting the advancement of the technology take a natural course, the government got in there and accelerated it too fast. So these people are getting kicked off their land. The owner drives through and he says, you guys have to leave. He says, we've been, the old man says, we've been living here all our lives. What are we supposed to do? The guy says, it's not my problem. We're, we're happy to work for you. I don't care. I can fire all of you and just use the tractor and do more work than nine of you. Who says you got, you, we got to get off? He, he, the owner says, the bank says you got to get off. I got to make more money with this land. The guy says, where's the banker at so I can shoot him? He says, the bank is in another state. So now the, tech, the technology of international, pardon, interstate banking even back then, allows them to create these hardship situations and nobody's accountable. Well, the landowner drives off and his family's wondering, what are we going to do? And this kid pulls up with a bulldozer to knock the house down. Do you, it was a memorable scene. I wonder if you remember it, uh, Debbie. This kid comes in with a bulldozer to knock her home down. And the old man with his family has a, the shotgun. He says, you stop right there or I'm going to shoot you. So the kid puts the bulldozer in neutral, takes his glasses, his goggles off, and the old man says, hey, you're Richardson's son. What are you doing this for? He says, I'm doing it for $3 an hour. He says, if you knock down my home, I'm going to shoot you. He says, no, you're not going to shoot me, because if you shoot me, they're going to hang you, and somebody just like me is going to come back and finish the job anyway. Friends, I'd like you to start thinking ahead. I don't know if the end times are coming in my lifetime. I think they are. But I know that hard times are coming. I could not in good conscience take that bulldozer job. Would you? 
The kid with the bulldozer, he said, I just care about feeding my family. That's all I care about. How are you going to maneuver yourself so that you can walk away, say no at any time? Are you sitting with your children and your family and saying, there's scenarios coming up, there's situations going to happen, we got to say no. Art Bell, that uh, guy used to have that wacky broadcast. I was listening to him one night on the radio on the road, and he had a call-in survey. He said, are you willing to steal or kill in a time of national crisis? Everybody phoned in and said, sure, I'd steal or kill in a time of national emergency. I wanted so much to call in and tell them, don't you understand? As soon as you adopt that mentality, they have you where they want you. Every one of us here better lock into Yahweh and get real tight with him. What does it mean to get real tight with Yahweh? Getting our prayers answered should become a habit. Having things work out where we know he is overseeing our lives should become a way of life. Because when hard times come, I don't want to see you people that I love turning against each other. I want you to stand with moral authority no matter what. Something else I want to... Sometimes Yahweh may deliver you. I'm going to tell you a little story. I just don't want this to happen to anybody. But a brother in Illinois told me about... He was... um, he dropped by to visit his dad on a Sabbath. And his dad was doing construction work around the house. He said, hey, son, why don't you help me? And he thought, oh, I'm doing a good thing. I'm helping my dad. He said, yes, dad, I'll help you. Construction work on a Sabbath. And then he felt a conviction. And he, he heard the spirit inside say, son of Yah, what are you doing? And so out of conviction, he prayed fervently right away. He said, Father, I blew it. I should never have done this. Deliver me from this. And as he stepped outside a screen door, a big bug flew right into his eye with a stinger. (laughs) And his eye started puffing up, and his whole face got all puffed, and he couldn't do any work for a couple of days. He counted that as an answer to prayer because he had the perfect excuse. Well, Dad, you know, I can't help you now. But you don't want to be in a situation where Yahweh intervenes like that. You'd rather cultivate the ability to say no in small areas and build up that strength. I just want to uh, talk about one other thing that um, I discovered that's really bothering me. Because I don't want you to fall into false areas of moral authority. And with this, I'll be wrapping up. <clears throat> Brother Jose, where'd you go? With this up. Oh, there you are. Okay. I'd like to draw to your attention to something we're seeing on Facebook and other places, and that is the ability of mobs to pile on. Pile on. For example, uh, a bunch of beachgoers were, pulled a dolphin, a small dolphin, out of the water and passed him around. They didn't put him back in the water in time, and he died. The whole nation was in convulsions over that. Millions of babies are being murdered through abortion every year. They get beat up, chopped up, sucked up, twisted up. Those little babies, get they twitch and squirm like the victim of a lynch mob. We hear hardly anything, anything in the press about that. But one dolphin dies and the whole nation goes crazy. 
It was a mob thing. It's easy to pile on something. They have a word for that. They call it virtue signaling. It's where you register your agreement with a mob. It's already headed in that direction. It doesn't really cost you anything to lean into a microphone and say, yes, I agree. That's bad. And I'm not into this. Plenty of bad people out there. But after a while, I think, no, that's a distraction. That's a distraction. And... If we want to develop moral authority, I want you to also develop the discernment to not jump on board with something simply because a crowd is going in that direction. We saw mob rule in Nazi Germany. We're seeing some mob rule right now in this country. I want you to pick your battles and may Yahweh grant you powerful victory as you boost your moral authority and become ambassadors for his kingdom. You've been very generous. Thank you so much. Hallelujah.